Welcome to Sleep Talk, the podcast about all things sleep, brought to you by sleephub.com.au. Here are your hosts, Dr. David Cunnington and Dr. Moira Junger. So welcome to episode 30 of Sleep Talk, the podcast talking all things sleep. And welcome again, Moira. Hello, Dave. Hello, everyone. And this month, we've got a co-host joining us, so Dr. Natalie Gramer. Hi, how are you going? I'm so happy to be here. So we'll come back to Natalie in a bit. The theme for this month's episode is sleep in traumatic brain injury, which at first blush seems a bit weird. But in fact, traumatic brain injury can encompass lots of different things. It's not just severe head injury. It's things like concussion, which is very common in the community. And sleep problems occur very commonly in traumatic brain injury, as you'll hear. And the other reason to feature it is a lot of the best research in the world that's going on in this area at the moment is being led in Australia by a group at Monash University. So it's a really great opportunity to feature some Australian research and focus on how that research is going to be used in the future to improve the outcomes for people with brain injuries. What's been happening this month, Moira? Anything from your point of view with regards to sleep? We talked last podcast about the ASA meeting in October and about you know putting in certain proposals and symposiums, etc. So the good news is that I've heard back that both the things that I submitted have been accepted. So that's exciting. There's a debate that we're doing and also a symposium looking just, uh, I was called it paying homage to the circadian rhythm, <laughs> talking in general terms about what we know now, where are the future directions, etc. And one of the keynote speakers, one of our special guests, is being part of that symposium, which is great. Yeah, you know, great. Hans van Dongen. Do you know Hans? I've never actually met him. Yeah, no, not personally, but yeah, yeah but I've he's seen him. Via email, really friendly and really enthusiastic. So that's exciting. Yeah. What and about you? Oh, sorry. Well, I was reviewing a lot of those symposiums. So, so you know, you put in some good proposals, Moira. But I got to say, the the quality of the proposals for symposia was awesome. Yeah. Like I was reviewing them, um, going, "Oh my god, you know, these are all really good." Yeah. How record gonna, numbers, apparently. You know, how are we going to whittle them down? Yeah. We're going to have to miss out on some things that sound really interesting. Oh, that's a shame, though. So isn't it? that's be, good. Should be so really, high quality. Yeah, high yeah. quality. That's mm. really evolving over the years yeah. and really sort of, you know, great selection yeah. of symposia. So it'd be a good meeting. So get on board. If you haven't ever been to it or you haven't been for a while, the listeners, <laughs> I reckon it's a good time to get on board. And I've got a little bit of time to think about that. And it's in Brisbane this year. I haven't got the dates in my head. But it's like October 17, rings yeah, a bell. That, that's for a few right. days. It's that weekend, yeah. Thursday, Friday, so, Saturday, yeah, around yeah, there. Yeah. So I think this is the time of the year that you have a special little jaunt up north. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so I'm going to Golden Door next weekend to give a lecture on sleep to the guests. As you know, I really enjoy that break. I take the opportunity to have a bit of a break myself and yeah. it's always good. Ooh, a bit of bike riding, maybe? No, you no. stay in the resort, <laughs> keep a pretty low low profile. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. There was, a, there was an article in the Daily Mail across the last couple of weeks actually on retreats and if you're not sleeping well, you know, take a retreat and giving an example of a few different retreats. Yeah. And Golden Door was actually listed, you know, number one option oh, featuring good. their sleep workshop, which oh. was developed by myself and Chris, my, right. my wife, yeah. who's a sort of health and health coach that helped develop it. So. Oh, Congratulations, that's Thank good. Thank you. Good. So, yeah, that was pretty good. So what about the rest of us that don't get to go to Golden Door? Was it in that article that talked about yeah, retreats yeah. at well, home? it wasn't really in that article. It was actually in a discussion that came up after that. So based on that article, you know how this goes, I had a media producer ring and go, oh, we've seen this, we want to do a TV story on this, could we mm. talk about it? And I said, yeah, but how about we try and work on something that's more accessible mm. for people? So rather than, you know, having to go to a retreat that maybe not everyone can access, what about the concept of, uh, you know, you have your own little 15-minute retreat every day at home? Because that's often what 
you know, people going away from Golden Door. It's trying to build in that. You're giving yourself permission to take time out of role to go to yeah. the health retreat. Yeah. Take that permission. How to maintain that. Yeah, yeah. maintain it and yeah. look after yourself at home. Yeah. So that's, you know, we'll see. That might turn into a media story. But I really like that concept of it doesn't have to be a going away to a health retreat. It's have your own little personal mm. retreat each day that there's a little bit of space in the day for some self-care and nurturing. Maybe that could be a whole another episode do you think we could do a whole episode on that? That's right up your alley, Moira. It is. <laughs> yeah, it is. Probably <laughs> we're squeezing it in with all the other topics and things we want to talk about. So speaking of topics, so the topic for this month is sleep in traumatic brain injury. And it seems like, you know, why that is a bit of a niche sort of thing. Well, in actual fact, traumatic brain injuries are surprisingly common in the community and they cause a lot of impact in the community. So I think it is a topic that's worth talking about. And the other reason to talk about it is a lot of the key research in this area worldwide has been done in Melbourne out of Monash University and collaborations. And that's what Natalie's going to help us with uh, today because Dr. Natalie Grimmer, in her role as a clinical neuropsychologist, has done a lot of that research and worked with people with traumatic brain injury. So we're going to draw on Natalie's expertise to tease out some of the sleep problems that occur in traumatic brain injury and some of the approaches that can be used to manage them. Yeah, we're very grateful, Nat, for your time. Thanks. Your, um, esteemed colleague. I know you've spent some time at Harvard recently mm-hmm. for several years, wasn't it? Yep, I was there. I did a, a fellowship there <laughs> at one of the Harvard hospitals at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Centre. It's where you did it your is. postdoc yeah, as well. Nice, nice couple of years there. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got a tiny accent too, Nat. A tiny yeah. bit on yeah, the arse. Just, just a little bit. <laughs> It was a little yeah. more pronounced when I initially came back, but yeah. uh, it sort of dissipated over time. <laughs> great. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you back, and I'm sure you'll have some wonderful things to contribute to this episode. Thanks. So just to introduce the topic, so a, a basic definition of traumatic brain injury is a brain injury that's acquired through a traumatic event. So the common things like a traffic accident and in Victoria, that's a common thing in Australia and other westernised societies. But other trauma such as attacks, blows to the head, falls, uh, can also cause traumatic brain injury. In 2008 in Australia, there are an estimated thousand cases of severe traumatic brain injury and about 1,500 cases of moderate traumatic brain injury. So it is reasonably common and the costs of that in terms of healthcare cost, quality of life impact was a total of around $8.6 billion. So an enormous healthcare impact. And that's why it's really important if we look at what could be done to reduce some of the, both the healthcare costs and improve quality of life for people post-traumatic brain injuries, because there's one, a potential enormous cost saving in terms of health cost, but two, a great potential for improving people's quality of life and reducing the impact of this on, on their ongoing health. So we've talked a little bit about your background, Natalie. So mm-hmm. just briefly, give us an overview of the sort of research that you did before you went to Harvard. So I initially started my research in a completely different area, actually looking at nutraceuticals and and its effects on cognition. Uh And then when I went over to Monash to start my doctorate, that's when I teamed up with the sleep group there in order to start looking at sleep. Actually, before I started there, I was actually working in the sleep lab (laughs) for you. So my doctoral research was really uh, looking at trying to understand what it is that changes in sleep following a traumatic brain injury and what might also be contributing to sleep problems and also looking at a treatment for sleep disturbance in patients with uh, TBI. So you really followed that sort of research program through the, you know, why is the problem happening? Mm-hmm. 
then, you know, in a mechanistic sense and then looking at what could you actually do. Mm-hmm. And then following that, what did you do while you were over at Harvard? My role was, it was a actually a clinical fellowship in neuropsychology. So it was an intensive two-year program. My first year I was in psychiatry and then my second year I was in a cognitive neurology unit. So primarily at the forefront of new uh, therapies for dementia research and also clinical interventions as well. So it was a very stimulating program. Intense, yeah. but yeah. amazing experience. Deep learning curve, I'm sure. Yep, it was. <laughs> yeah. And now that you're back, what sort of work are you doing now? So um, now that I'm back, I'm working as a clinician, as a neuropsychologist at Monash Health. And I'm also in the process of working clinically at the um, Healthy Sleep Clinic at Monash University as well. So really trying to utilise both of my skills moving forward. When are we going to see what you've learned and this great work you've done with traumatic brain injury? Mm. When's the rubber going to hit the road? Is there going to be an opportunity for you to roll out those sort of programs? Yes, so that's part of the reason why I'm moving over to the sleep clinic there to try and help implement that, to implement what we know about my research and that of others within our group and around the world and trying to really put that into practice. There is a difference between doing research in, in a research capacity and then actually implementing that clinically. So yeah. um, that's part of what how I see my role moving forward there. Excellent. I know that your supervisor, Jenny Ponsford, mm-hmm. is still involved. At a, I mean, there's so many studies, mm-hmm. spin-off of the sort of stuff that you were doing. Yep. There's a mm-hmm. lot of different research ongoing. And as you aware and I'm not sure if I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but I'm involved a little bit in clinically supervising some of the work that's being done with the TBI population and stroke as well. People mm-hmm. who, and then it's really interesting that they, it's been such a great recognition of the type of work you're doing and, and Jenny's group to know that people with a traumatic brain injury are so, so, so tired for a long time afterwards mm-hmm. and they have the sleep disturbance. So the both the fatigue and the sleep disturbance, it's just so wonderful to be able to be part of that to see that this research can be so practically implemented. You know, and it's mm-hmm. they're doing wonderful work. The the measures so far that I've seen are just it's so compelling. Mm-hmm. Like nearly everyone has some kind of improvement. Mm-hmm. It's really extraordinary, and that's with the CBT, like you know, which we've talked about before. But I think your particular research wasn't with the CBT. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. I was actually more interested in understanding the circadian changes yeah. in sleep. Yes. So we know that after a TBI, patient patients end up developing a change in their sleep wake schedule after and uh, our TBI. And that's very different as compared to before the yeah. incident. And many instances, patients didn't have a sleep problem before the head injury, and then after the head injury, you know, they're really presenting with increased fatigue and yeah. increased frustration about their sleep. Yes. They're also withdrawing from social activities mm-hmm. because they're trying to compensate for mm-hmm. sleep. Yes. And often that results in a lot of anxiety for people and and also depression and uh, it can be quite debilitating for people yeah and their and their carers or or their their families as well yeah that's right and generally you know at face value when you meet a lot of patients with traumatic brain injury you can't tell that they've had a head injury Mm. Uh, it's not like a stroke where Mm. people often have hemiparesis or they have difficulties walking Mm. so it's often an invisible disease um and uh, people really struggle with that yeah People think they're fully recovered. Say, oh, aren't you great now? Right. They look fine. They're walking. They're talking. They're back at work, for instance, but they're not quite right. It's about adjusting to Mm. the change can be quite – it can take years. Mm. So what are some of the common sleep problems you see? 
and people following traumatic brain injury? So we know that up to about 50% of patients develop a new sleep problem after a traumatic brain injury. Common sleep problems include insomnia mm-hmm. is, is one of the biggest ones. We also know that people end up having this increased sleep drive and they'll feel like they're constantly sleepy. We know that even sleep apnea is also high up there. Not as high as in a stroke population, but it's definitely up there. And, and a smaller number of patients end up having circadian rhythm problems as well. There's been some case studies looking at that. And is that more in that they get more delayed? Or, or a mixture of changes in their circadian rhythm? Yeah, so generally the case reports have been reporting a delayed yeah. uh, body clock. We often see that even with patients with presenting with insomnia end up mm. having a bit of a delayed body clock as well. Do you think in some cases, particularly before they've been involved with such a high-level research, some of them are presenting that they think it's insomnia and their GP or other family members call it insomnia, but in fact it might actually be a circadian rhythm disturbance primarily? And I think that's something that wasn't initially apparent to me when I started. Mm out in this research but it became very clear that patients that were presenting with insomnia mm. did have an underlying circadian alteration it may not have been as pronounced as someone with like a delayed sleep body clock disorder you know they were going to bed at 1 or 2 a.m in the morning but still they were you know going to bed quite late yeah, and, yeah. and it was having an effect on them in order to get to sleep they were maybe initiating sleep too early trying yeah. to compensate so so why might they get disturbances in the circadian rhythm what are some you know mechanisms by which this could occur yeah so that's something that i've looked into actually but before i started in this area there was a study by our group showing that there was actually a reduction in the amount of melatonin produced mm-hmm. in the evening and they compared them they compared patients with moderate to severe tbi to to healthy controls without sleep problems and so that was really sort of the first time that we were like oh and you know these are people that are at least 12 months following a head injury and Mm. they still have quite low melatonin levels and so it was pinpointing that maybe there was some alteration in the circadian apparatus be that the pineal gland or even the connections between the master clock the suprachiasmatic nucleus with um, the pineal gland as a direct from the injury from the from the injury right right and so my research was starting to then expand on that research so one of the studies that i did was that we recruited another group of patients with traumatic brain injury and we we sampled their melatonin melatonin before they went to bed and during the night mm-hmm. hourly and we also compared them to to healthy controls who hadn't had a TBI and what we showed again was that patients with a TBI had reduced melatonin it was quite considerable it remained attenuated throughout the night so, so how did you measure melatonin hourly we did that through saliva and it involved predominantly me yes, <laughs> so you developed your own sleep disturbance in this time I did that's the irony of working yeah, in sleep isn't it, isn't it <laughs> and uh, you actually get them to chew on a little bud cotton bud and uh, that absorbs the saliva. And so you do that hourly. So it involved actually waking up these poor patients who were having problems sleeping every hour throughout the night. That is assayed and then uh, you can use those values in order to determine salivary melatonin concentration. Mm-hmm. Can you do assays, oh, just as an aside, out of, can you, do you do the assays yourself out at Monash? Or they sent away somewhere? No, they were sent yeah, away. Okay. Yeah, pretty standard practice in Australia. Unfortunately, you don't have that many know, places that's that what can I was, do it. Because I was thinking, because I was involved in a similar thing in 1996 <laughs> and we sent them away then. I thought, I wonder if it's changed. No, it hasn't changed, unfortunately. <laughs> so with all that hard work and collecting mm. all those samples, what, mm. what did you end up showing? One of the main findings we showed was that melatonin was reduced throughout the night. The other thing that we found is that when we recruited the controls, we made sure that 
the TBIs were matched to someone to a healthy control that had a similar bedtime. And what we actually showed is that when you look at the temporal relationship between melatonin onset and actual bedtime, there was actually a difference in the temporal relationship. So with the controls, melatonin onset was occurring about four and a half hours before the people were going to bed, which is what you would usually expect. And then in the TBIs, there was actually the temporal relationship between melatonin onset and going to bed was about two hours. Mm. So uh, that really told us that there was a circadian sort of alteration going on, even though that the sleep periods for both people with the TBI and the controls were about the same. The melatonin profile was actually shift. Mm. Was any of it a behavioural thing? So people fatigued and therefore deliberately going to bed earlier and shortening then that difference between the melatonin change? Yeah, I think people were trying to go to bed early because they thought that that was the right thing to do in order Mm. to get a good night's sleep. But as a consequence of that, that was probably underpinning why they were having difficulties falling asleep quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And they were waking up very unrefreshed in the morning as a consequence of yes. staying too long in bed. Is it going to be widespread common practice to note to maybe that these this subgroup of patients would respond well to some oral melatonin to, to give it at a you know? Right. A so that was thing? sort of the impetus for doing the clinical trial that we did. Mm. So in that our study, we actually supplemented people with melatonin. Yeah. The only preparation that we used was circadin. So that's only one approved by the TGA. And the reason for that was because previous studies have actually shown that if you administer circadin to patients that are exhibiting problems with sleep, it actually improves their sleep quality. Mm -hmm. Mm. And so we were really sort of targeting that aspect of sleep, not so much the circadian aspect, but more just to improve their sleep quality. Mm -hmm. We did that because we wanted to try and understand if at a clinical level, if people were given melatonin, would that actually improve sleep quality? Would that actually improve sleep onset latencies? And so that study was a crossover design. So everyone who participated in the study actually received the placebo at some point in this uh, fashion. Yes. So everyone served as their own control, which was yeah, really neat. That's, that's a cool um, design. And it meant that we didn't need to recruit as many people for the study, which is mm. often hard uh, is. to do. Especially yeah. waking them up every hour. <laughs> All these other hard things. Right. So um, actually in the clinical trial, we, not everyone participated in that overnight sleep study. Uh, okay. Yeah, it was sort yeah. of a set, it was sort uh, of an adjunct study. Yeah. We didn't have a lot of people willing to be woken up hourly. <laughs> oh, I can't imagine why not. <laughs> that sort of implemented, that limited the, um, the number of people interested. Mm. So we showed that after four weeks of melatonin supplementation, there was a significant improvement in sleep quality compared to mm. placebo. Yeah. However, we didn't see that there were any reductions in sleep onset latency. Um. Um, So they were our two primary outcomes, sleep quality and also sleep onset latency. Why didn't you? What what do you think accounts for that? Yeah, I think that there was probably a mismatch when people were taking their medication, the Mm. melatonin. And also the other thing is, is that we weren't really sure when everyone's individual circadian profile was. And so we weren't necessarily timing it Mm. to their body to their circadian yeah, profile. It's a little bit random. Yeah, so yeah. it was a little bit random. Mm. But the, the good thing is is that we showed that irrespective of that, there was actually some improvements in sleep efficiency as well, and there was some secondary improvements in anxiety and also fatigue. Fantastic. And behaviourally, we can you can address that 
sleep onset latency reduction, hopefully by the, the later bedtime and things like that. But over time, like right. obviously not in your study, but, you know, yeah. that group of people, if they wanted mm-hmm. to work on that, that's yeah. something I would be advocating to say, look, right. you know, <laughs> stay a bit later. Stay, yeah. And then hopefully that can, you, you won't have these hours and hours of tossing and turning. You'll get off to sleep quicker. Right. You'll be so it's along that line, you know, what else can you add in? So if you've got melatonin as one of your tools, mm. the same group has also shown that light had a role for fatigue. Yep. Mm-hmm. So what else is in the toolbox that you yeah. can use for people with sleep problems um, and TBI? There's also been, as Moira's pointed out, the cognitive behavioural therapy for insomnia mm-hmm. as well. I yeah. think um, those three, the triad... Are, yes. are really useful. And so that's where I sort of see the next steps for me in terms of trying to tailor these th- these three different approaches to patients yes. based on their presenting complaint. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can help sort of improve particular areas of sleep or fatigue based on their complaint. Yeah. So if you're thinking of CB, CBTI, for example, mm. and you're thinking of a straight insomnia population without TBI mm. and then your TBI population, what are some general adaptations you need to make? Yeah, yeah. so with patients with uh, TBI, generally there has to be a little bit more hand-holding in the process Mm -hmm. and you have to be prepared to get your hands a little bit more dirty than you otherwise would and often patients are very willing to engage with clinicians in terms of trying to implement these strategies but the strategies really need to be concrete and they need to be very applicable and you actually you know in many instances actually need to implement them during a therapy session yeah yeah to try and get them to work or Often patients with TBI have a lot of difficulties encoding new information. And so the wealth and the volume of information needs to be reduced as well Mm. to try and help circumvent that. Mm. So do you mean you focus more on the B behavioural and less on the C cognitive? Yeah, and generally that's what the the group at Monash have done, have tried to really focus on that behavioural component there and a little bit of the cognitive but not as much. Yeah, What would you say, more? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think within that behavioural, trying to help with that, new information acquisition, a lot of use of tools like the smartphones and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing, to r- reminders, yep. sometimes having to record the session for mm-hmm. them to remember just because they just might not remember what was said. Yep. And just yeah, a lot of more, a lot of patients, yep. a lot of sometimes going over There's the modules. Uh, mm-hmm. I listen quite closely to to the sessions because I'm involved with the supervision and mm-hmm. and yeah, they have to go very slowly and have to repeat a lot of things and yep. uh, on occasions. Yep. And sometimes making use, uh, often making use of the a partner or carer of someone being there as well mm-hmm. for those ver- for those reasons for support, but also to, for the understanding of what what the actual strategies are meant to be. Yep. Or what are we going to try here? And rest, rest, rest. You know, it's a big component of it too, like trying to really, you know, look the pacing of your day, of your, your energy and lots, lots of analogies with handouts with, with the battery. And mm-hmm. people understand that battery that when it goes red on your phone, you're down to 20%, you've got a bit of time, but you don't really want to get it down to then. You want to recharge it before then. Yep. So it's not this urgent, I'm about to, you know, pass out. It's very interesting work and I think Something that struck me over the it's been many years now that I've been involved with it. What's interesting is that it's sometimes these people who are presenting with a TBI, like a full blown trauma or sometimes stroke, that their functioning is it's surprising how well they can function still. Mm-hmm. And the people that I've seen here, like mainstream people, if you like, they haven't had an official TBI or they haven't had an official brain injury, but sometimes but their functioning is just as low sometimes. Yeah. I think, you know, mm-hmm. people who have had long term insomnia or long-term hypersomnia it's almost sometimes and it might sound offensive but presenting sometimes like they've got a brain injury in and i don't officially have one but they feel just so tired yeah. they're so tired and they're so distressed sometimes they can have those yeah, that, the same flavor so one of the things i didn't really emphasize up front is although some of the work in tbi is about moderate and severe tbi mm-hmm. 
you know, they're people that get flagged almost at the accident scene or when the injury occurs and then get into this whole rehab, head injury sort of process. Yeah. But then there's an even bigger group that are, don't have such a severe injury yeah. and they deal with the fractures and the yeah. head injuries, nothing. Cause they yeah, never, they don't they ever never get to really the clinics. They never really had a prolonged loss of consciousness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the rates of sleep disturbance are actually pretty similar in mm. the milder groups mm. um, as the severe groups. And we'll often see the milder groups in a more ambulatory setting and they won't have been through that whole inpatient rehab yeah. type of pro- program yeah. and get that label necessarily. Mm. That's something that I appreciated when I was in the US. So when I was working in the cognitive neurology unit, they'd actually set up a concussion clinic. Mm-hmm. So as soon as a patient had been admitted to ED with a concussion, they immediately mm. transferred to the neurologist. Mm. And the reason for that is because they realised that as soon as a patient had been engaged with a health professional, they could debunk some of the myths about a concussion mm. and they could also educate the patient yeah. as well early on. Yes. And that seemed to alter their trajectory oh, of recovery, good. which I think and, is really important. And very good screening too, very yes. good baseline screening, yep. and, mm. which I notice they're doing a lot more for even um, children's sport, for instance. Like, yep. you know, they're really taking concussion very mm. seriously, which is good, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's something that's only, only recently been on the radar. Also. So now you know what to do. You know, you've the group shown that these three interventions have a role, the melatonin, the light, the, the CBT, mm. and you've got in your mind how you'd like it to look. What are the things in your way? What's going to stop you? in terms of rolling that out? There is still a lot of misunderstanding in the general community about sleep problems. Mm -hmm. And even when patients are presenting to a GP clinic, often there are so many other issues that need to be addressed that often sleep gets pushed to the side a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, patients will often sort of complain about it but may not present that as the first complaint or may not be up there enough. So often, mm. you know, those patients don't end up tr- trickling through to a yeah. service. And then what mm. about coming the other way, the ones with the more severe injuries that come via a rehab yeah. service and maybe in an inpatient setting? Mm. What are the barriers to still rolling out these sort of things and making it part of routine clinical yeah. practice? I mean, as I said before, one of the issues with implementing the findings from research into clinical practice is that the patients that are participating in these studies are very motivated yeah. to yes. do it. You know, I see it all the time clinically that if you really don't have a patient that's interested in making a change or if they don't really believe that sleep is an issue for them but others do, it's really not conducive for, you know, it doesn't really bode well for good therapeutic sort of Mm -hmm. outcomes. So that's something that I really see as being an issue moving forward. Mm -hmm. Another barrier that comes to mind for me is patients that lack that family support. Generally, the patients who uh, particularly have severe head injuries and are unable to drive and get to appointments, that can actually be a real barrier Mm -hmm. to implementing treatment. That's something that's often overlooked. And in my research, I ended up having to do a lot of the the planning about the logistics, about getting them to see the doctor, the sleep doctor, me having to see them. I had to do a lot of the Mm. scheduling and timetabling, Mm -hmm. which is very time-consuming. Almost a social work role as well. Right, it was. And so I can see people really falling through the cracks if Mm. that's not there to help Mm. them guide them through that process. So usually patients that do have a well-connected family generally can sort of buffer their way through those issues Mm -hmm. and uh, can receive therapy. And then in the acute setting, often sleep problems are sort of low on the priority list. 
and they're not well identified. Often they're attributed, you know, to being in a novel environment, the sleep hospital environments, you know, well documented to be not very conducive for sleep. And so often other issues are more pressing, you know, their orthopedic injuries or, you know, their cognitive problems. And so sleep's under-recognised then. And it's not until patients then present in outpatient clinic following the TBI that maybe sleep problems might be identified then. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great. Thanks a lot for your insights, Nat. That's really helpful. You're welcome. Yeah. yeah, thanks. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. So hopefully that's given you a bit of background on something you may not have thought about before, but sleep problems that do occur with traumatic brain injury. So the great news is there's some understanding about the mechanisms and there's actually proven therapies that are research proven, not too challenging and can be implemented and hopefully coming to a health service near you soon. Thanks to Dr. Natalie Grima, who's job it is is going to be to, to <laughs> yes, roll it out. Go now. <laughs> a lot so, of weight on my shoulders. <laughs> no, no pressure. <laughs> All right. So if you want to look at some more information, I'll put links to some of Natalie's papers and papers from the Monash group on the website. And there's also quite a nice review on this topic in Up to Date, which is an online medical resource. And I'll put a link for that in the show notes as well. Okay, we've come to our clinical tip of the month and it's uh, our special guest, Nat, can have your input on the clinical tip. What's the clinical tip this month, Nat? Clinicians need to be prepared to be more involved with their patients and hands-on in terms of implementing recommendations. Clinicians would best be in terms of uh, identifying the barriers up front and also devising strategies with their patients collaboratively. I think uh, recommendations need to be simplified and also the recommendations need to be concrete and tangible. And lastly, minimise information overload is really key in in this group. Um, So the volume of information needs to be reduced. And this can be achieved by supplementing verbal instructions with written instructions and also asking patients to paraphrase instructions in their own words to facilitate comprehension. Really nice tips. And and I reckon they're applicable to the to anyone we see in clinical practice, not just a TBI population. Because, you know, I I know I'm a bit geeky about this sort of stuff. I can tend to go, oh, that's really interesting and just dump a whole lot of information on people without thinking about, yeah, maybe I need to put that in some context or or not overload people Mm -hmm. with things. Yeah, and I think it's clinicians are using their clinical skills in order to gauge patients, you know, facial expressions to really know when to know when you need to taper it back a little bit. Mm, great. Very handy hints. Thank you. You're welcome. So, Dave, what's your pick of the month? So, my pick of the month, all of us have got a journal article this month. We're all, we're all going a bit geeky. <laughs> so, so, my article for this month I got in first is called <laughs> Evening Types Demonstrate Reduced SSRI Treatment Efficacy. So, it's from Monash. We're keeping with the theme of Monash University research. You know, great research team, at least McClashan, Sean Drummond and Sean Kane, it's a star-studded cast, and really interesting research looking at around a thousand people and getting the, really them to declare whether they were more an eveningness type or an early morning type, so someone who preferred to be up late versus someone who preferred to sort of go to bed early, and looking at mood, depressive symptoms, suicidal ideation, response to SSRIs, and a whole range of those type of symptoms, and showing that in people who had a tendency to uh, late preference or eveningness type, that they were less responsive to SSRI 
medications and had more depressive symptoms. And that's really important. You know, as a clinician, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, so managing depression is not my primary thing, but I see lots of people with depression and sleep problems. But as a clinician, if you're involved in managing people with depression, recognising this interaction between circadian characteristics and, you know, late phase, and maybe someone's not going to respond as well to medications and not respond as well in terms of have more ongoing symptoms. For me, it's just the start. I think, you know, almost certainly these guys are going to be sort of moving further along this line trying to unravel this relationship and hopefully come up with some really good strategies for us as clinicians. I think it's really great. Very, very exciting to see that because it's not so much that they're not responding, but it's just the, ti- the timing at which they're getting their medication, mm-hmm. which is something that hasn't really... We've talked about it for a long time, but it's not really out there. It hasn't been translated yet into clinical practice. And this paper, will, yeah, as you say, will be a catalyst for that. What about for you, Moira? What's your tip? Oh, my, my pick. Yeah, I, what I saw that I thought, oh, that's a, that's a good thing to speak about on the podcast. Uh, an Australian group of researchers, and it was in the um, National Sleep Foundation you know, a monthly, I think it's monthly, their monthly journal called just called Sleep Health. Mm-hmm. Does that come out every month? Don't know. Sure. <laughs> it doesn't matter. It's the April one anyway. And Sarah Blunden and a whole group of other sort of eclectic group of Australian researchers. Paper was titled Sleep Schedules and School Performance in, Indi- in Indigenous Australian Children. And it just caught my eye because I think this is an area we don't know enough about or don't research enough. And so hats off to Sarah and her group for, for bringing this to our attention. We need to do more of this. And they looked at a group of seven to nine-year-olds and looked at data from the Australian Longitudinal Study of Indigenous Children and also NAPLAN, which is just a, our national assessment program for literacy and numeracy that all kids in Australia do in grades three, five, year seven and year nine. So it's good that that's um, being used for, for good because <laughs> a lot of it... <laughs> We can talk about NAPLAN on another, another <laughs> occasion. <laughs> but um, I think that – so in, in short, really, like what, what they – they didn't really have any data on their sleep. They asked them in class about their, their sleep habits and then they classed them as either normal sleepers, early risers, long sleepers, variable sleepers and short sleepers. So pretty sort of um, a vague sleep data. But nonetheless, it's great that it's just on our on our radar. And short sleep, of course, people who didn't sleep very long was associated with poorer school performance compared with long sleep. And this performance worsening over time for, for some performance indicators. I think it's really important to as a reminder to us all because as sleep scheduling is modifiable and we can improve, it's something reasonably simply sometimes we can improve. Mm-hmm. And all we're trying to close the gap within the Indigenous health of children and adults. So it's just another, adds a lot of weight to, to trying to improve the health outcomes that just aren't getting getting better yeah. like look years and years and years later there's lower literacy lower health lower performance in so many ways and it's just it's so unfair so it just offers an opportunity for further improvement for improving sleep so improving performance outcomes and other health outcomes for these children so i thought that was a good one and i recommend people to have a look at that Nice. What about you, Nat? So I actually came across a study titled Beta Amyloid Accumulation in the Brain After One Night of Sleep Deprivation, and it was published in the prestigious Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. So this is uh, from a group of researchers in the US. <laughs> so I'm jumping ship here. <laughs> <laughs> That's, we need to get away from just our Australian stuff. Good on you. <laughs> so what they actually did is they experimentally disrupted sleep in healthy people uh, for one night and then compared them again when they had a good night's sleep. And so what they did is they actually looked at beta amyloid. So beta amyloid is a sticky protein that accumulates between cells and forms plaques, and these plaques disrupt neuronal communication and it's believed to play a role 
in um, the etiology of Alzheimer's disease. And so what they actually showed is that experimentally disrupting sleep for one night actually resulted in increased beta amyloid accumulation in actually the right hippocampus and also the thalamus. And that's actually quite interesting because I think these findings highlight that even just one night's worth of disrupted sleep actually has an effect on sleep in terms um, and the brain in terms of clearing metabolic waste. Mm. And it also points to potential target for prevention for Alzheimer's disease as well, potentially. I know that we were talking before and you mentioned yes. that. <laughs> so because listeners will know that we've spoken about this before like, um, on a couple of occasions, that it's such good research. It's so interesting. It's mm. high quality and was afraid and it's what's happened is that the headlines mm. are one night of sleep deprivation causes Alzheimer's, mm. which is not quite what the researchers had in mind. The well, conclusions don't state that so mm. bluntly. They mm. sort of say there's an associate. I mean, the conclusions don't say that you are all going to have Alzheimer's after your one night of no. course. <laughs> I, I, I like your interpretation, Nat, that it, it shows that it impacts the you know clearance yeah. mechanisms mm-hmm. so that then there's an accumulation of this protein mm-hmm. after a single night. Mm-hmm. That's Makes it. No, That's... Yeah, exactly. You know, it doesn't mean if it happens for five nights, this happens. It happens yep. for 10 nights, it's irreversible. And it happens for 20 nights, you're, you're mm-hmm. screwed. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't test that. You know, yeah. So you yeah. can't extrapolate it in that sort of way. Yeah, and, and I think it's because there's a poor understanding about the pathophysiology underpinning Alzheimer's and that... Actually, beta amyloid does accumulate in younger people, and it's just a byproduct of metabolic waste. And so, it's just that process potentially yeah. is disrupted, and sleep appears to play a role in that removal. Yeah, that clearance. And just as maybe it's just why we feel so awful. Mm. You know, we've got this toxicity when we haven't had enough sleep, particularly if it's related to stress and booze and other things. So it's actually just it's just a nice reminder of hey, clear the waste, reset yourself, give yourself an adequate optimal opportunity to feel right. to feel good yeah i think that's really key yeah, yeah you know don't be worried about the alzheimer's headlines that you're all going to get that because yeah it's we don't know there's so many um potential pathways mm-hmm. we don't know exactly what causes that thank you Dan. you're welcome so thank you all for listening to this episode and thanks for your help Nat, and thanks for joining us. thank you yeah. it was a pleasure being here yeah it's been really good we'll get you on again Okay. Um, when you're the senior coordinator. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's great. Thanks for your input. <laughs> so look out for our next episode. So we're going to start a series uh, probably over the next two episodes of talking about aspects of sleep and depression. And we'll try and talk a bit more about the biology in the next episode and a bit more about some clinical aspects in the episode after that. As we talked about up front, Sleep Down Under is the Australasian Sleep Association's annual scientific meeting that's on in October and registrations uh, are begin- going to be opening soon and great looking program Mm. so look out for that meeting and register for that thanks for listening to the podcast and if you've got any suggestions for topics or comments for us email us at podcast at sleepup.com.au and you can send us a review on itunes or subscribe via any podcast apps or the sleep talk app thanks thanks thank you this podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice diagnosis or treatment always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.